Welcome captives and captive friends to episode four of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialist R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. A reminder that the best way to get every episode of the podcast downloaded straight to your device is to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. If you are on iOS, then you can find us on Apple Podcasts app, while on Android, we are on Google Podcasts. You can also listen and subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, and the majority of other podcast apps. My guest co-host this week is Oliver Schofield, a captive stalwart based here in London. He is managing partner of Risks and head of captive and alternative risk transfer consulting at Principal Re, a reinsurance broker based out of Malaysia. Ollie, welcome to the Global Captive Podcast. Thank you, Richard. Nice to see you again. Thank you for coming. Um, your captive and reinsurance career has included a number of stints, um, but among those are 15 years at Aon and three and a half at RKH Reinsurance Brokers. And I think your captive experience even goes all the way back to the mid-1980s. Uh, yes, it does. Back in uh, 1986, I started at the Alexander Howden Anistics team, which was the captive feasibility and captive reinsurance operations of, uh, of the company. Um, in '96, I moved through into Aon um, as part of their captive reinsurance ART team. Um, stayed there through till 2013 when I moved to RKH and was uh, responsible for their captive reinsurance and captive consulting. Uh, that was a very varied, very interesting uh, career. Um, but in 2018, I decided, along with uh, a, a dear friend and uh, now business partner, Damien McNamara. Yeah, I know Damien, good guy. You good guy indeed. Um, and we decided that we wanted to set up our own business, um, which we called Risks. Um, so that we could provide independent captive consultancy services to broking houses and to corporates alike. Um, at the same time, we also set up Principal Rees Captive and ART consulting team in Asia, recognising the huge growth opportunities that there are there. Definitely come on to a bit of Asia chat uh, in the second half of the podcast. You've been talking about captives and designing captives since longer than I've been alive then, Ollie. I know, it's quite a scary <laughs> thought, really. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's a clue to my age for, for our listeners. Um, Ollie, we often hear, being based here in London, we often hear how very is no uh, growth or new growth in the captive market in the United Kingdom uh, and Europe. How much of that do you believe is down to captives not being cost effective enough in this market and how much of it do you think is more down to poor selling of, of a captive message not really getting through to Europe its middle market which is which is where growth should probably come from? I think it's very much a combination of the two. From a cost-effective point of view, um, certainly the challenge there is that where we have cheaper insurance markets, where insurers are fighting over every dollar of premium that is available, then the buyers are not really put in a position where they have to think about alternative ways of transferring their risk or indeed self-insurance. I think, personally, that can be mitigated through the use of the cheaper sell options that are being available really for the last 20 years or so, um, whereby we can look at a restructured program design where the insured looks to buy the pure cat cover, not just a lower layer dollar swapping area. Um, so it's cost effective. If it's sold properly, it can be much more cost effective than pure transference of dollar swapping exposures we, we often hear that captive number um, sell captive numbers sorry fluctuate a lot more often so in, in vermont their statistics around sales are, are not less accurate but less readily available because often a sale might serve a purpose just for 6 12 18 months and, and then drop off again so i guess it just gives a, a sale will give 
a uh, corporation or organisation a bit more flexibility as to when and how they use a captive if they want to commit to a, to a standalone. That's very true. And the flexibility is so much um, the key behind uh, the success of the sale structures. Um, I think also aligned with that, um, you mentioned poor selling um, a few moments ago. Um, I think it's really to do with the education, the knowledge and the awareness of these vehicles and how beneficial they can be, whether that's for a short-term one-off deal, six, eight months, or whether it's for a longer, uh, slow burn into the into the fuller captive uh, environment. Um, and I think it's, it's not really viewed or has not really been viewed by the smaller firms as being the the vehicle that can answer some of their some of their challenges so i think we all have a responsibility from the sales perspective to deliver the message across that middle market that these tools are here for their benefit to enable them not only to control their risk in a more effective way but also to um, to engage their business in a the creation of a new profit center in the organization do you think then captive market particularly after a lot of consolidation in recent years, is very dominated by large, the large broker-owned captive managers. I just wonder, is there a problem? Is there a, not a bottleneck, but a blockage in the pipeline from the smaller broken operations that might have more visibility to the middle market, which they're not willing to take those those clients who may be perfect for a captive or sale model, we're not willing to take them to the big, the big broker. Yeah, it's absolutely right. The captive message is not getting through to the middle market from, um, from the middle market brokers. And partly that's because the small brokers don't have the skill sets because they've never really been involved in that type of business. Um, and partly it's because of the budgets within those broking houses. They simply can't afford to have a team of five or six captive experts sitting on their staff on a full-time basis for perhaps only two or three inquiries a year. So it, the, the economics don't make sense for that, that, that middle market broker area, which is why I think we have seen um, an increase in the number of independent consultants who want to work with those small independent brokers to support them in getting the message across to that middle market space. Yeah, I think it, it's a really interesting one to watch. And as we see more consolidation in the captive management market. I mean, Guernsey, obviously Heritage used to be the kind of the, the go-to independent on the island and Artex bought it and they're, they're keen to still emphasise that they are independent, but of course they are now attached to Gallagher's. I mean, Hepburn Insurance, I believe, is still active in Guernsey and um, Alternative Risk Management, ARM, are very well thought of um, in that space as well. So maybe we just need to talk to brokers a little bit more about how to get that message across. I agree. But Richard, you've now made it to episode four of the Global Captive podcast. What have you got in store for us this week? Well, in the second half of this episode, Ollie, we will have an extended roundtable discussion with Vermont's highly rated captive team, David Provost, Stanley Biggleston, Rich Smith and Ian Davis. But first, our captive owner interview this week is with Heather McClure. Heather is with the University of Oklahoma. She is Chief Legal Officer of its captive insurance company, Thomas Hart in Vermont, ensuring hospital and physician liability, and is also Chief Risk Officer of OU Medicine. Heather started by telling us a bit about the background of OU's captive. We started in 2006 in the spring after a period of rising uh, professional liability costs for the academic medical practice. In the beginning, we insured only the um, faculty and residents and uh, medical students of the University of Oklahoma's College of Medicine. Since then, we've added the teaching hospitals to the program. So we now insure OU Medicine, which is the name of the, the hospital system. 
And how, how has it evolved then over the years? You touched, obviously, you brought in um, other, other parts of the university and other parts of the system. Has it continually grown or have there been periods where you've needed to kind of stop writing a line or offload some business? You know, I'd say it has continually grown, um, both in volume of insureds, certainly with the, the medical practice having grown so much over the last uh, 13 years. We went, I think, from maybe 1,200 individual insureds to we have about 2,300 now medical staff. Um, and then also with regard to lines written, we, we started with professional liability, but we put general liability and some cyber in as well. We're looking at putting some deductibles and other things um, for commercial lines for the hospital and the captive as well. And I know that um, there's also been some kind of change in the ownership structure of the captive and how the captive is structured. Can you talk us through that? Because it sounds like it's maybe quite unique. Yeah, the captive did provide us a unique solution to um, this issue, well, an opportunity that came up when HCA exited the Oklahoma market in February of 2018 after um, a period where the hospital system was um, looking at being bought by potentially some other buyers. Um, it turned out that the best solution for the hospital was to start a new 501c3 in Oklahoma and purchase the assets of HCA. And so we had the opportunity at that point because the hospital wasn't merging into another system, another big healthcare system, to start from scratch on an insurance program and to put the hospital system in the same captive that the physicians had So or have. We had the University of Oklahoma withdraw as the sole member, sole corporate member of the captive, which which is a little unusual because it's really not, you know, the University of Oklahoma captive anymore. It is um, a, truly a memberless captive under Vermont's um, nonprofit act that allows for that. And so we now have just two policyholders. Um, each policyholder appoints members to the captive board and certainly has aligned interests um, but there's not an owner of the captive, which is somewhat unique. Yeah, that is interesting because obviously the general notion of a captive is, a, is an insurance company owned by the insured. So to then make yourself kind of not owned by the insured, make, right. some would say that's no longer a captive, but it is a captive because it's still insuring risk of just two policyholders who are related to each other. It is. The policyholders are very related to each other with the same nexus of, um, you, you know, the patient is the same for the physicians and for the uh, for the hospital, and so we're still doing the same work. It's allowed us, though, to create efficiencies like, you know, joint defense and and certainly financing efficiencies that that were not available before when there had to be two you know, separate insurance programs that the patient was dealing with all over the same incident. Has the value of the captive always been recognized more broadly internally at OU, or, or can it sometimes be a battle to communicate its purpose? Absolutely. There have been opportunities to uh, educate leaders as they come into our system about what a captive is. Um, often I have to start you know, sort of from the basics because people have a preconceived notion about captives or they may not have literally ever heard of a yeah. captive before at all. So, you know, we spend some time doing that. Once someone is in the system, and, and certainly leaders who have been there for a while, when they are able to experience the benefits of the captive, you know, it's sort of a, a no-brainer. It's a it's a win-win. They easy, see the, easy, easy sell? Absolutely, yeah. It, yeah. it sort of sells itself. There's no downside to it. So our captive internally has a very good reputation for being um, exactly what's needed. You know, we're able to customize it for our policyholders. So if um, we need broad coverage in a certain area or a, or a unique coverage in a certain area, you know, the, the captive makes us nimble. 
Um, certainly there are other carriers, commercial carriers, that would be happy to write us, and we, we have reinsurers in, in the commercial market, but uh, we find that the you know writing on our own paper is is what we need to do. And are those those benefits that you try and communicate to the to the board of, or, and, the, and the leadership are they normally quantifiable uh, numbers that you can hand to them, or is it more about risk control and and that flexibility? Of course, very focused on financial performance and efficiencies, and so we can quantify those. I think you know for a long time we we're able to give sort of anecdotal examples of how the captive could help us or how we thought it was helping us in terms of relating to our constituencies, our, our, you know, our patients, and how it was easier to avoid claims when we were handling risk ourselves and financing that risk ourselves and able to sort of put our money where our mouth is. Now, I think as the captive has evolved and, and been around for over a decade, we're able to quantify that with um, actuarial reports and you know with our losses and we know that that's true we know that we're um, avoiding claims and litigation by by being able to use the captive Ollie Hever is the first of a few American university captive owner interviews we will have on the global captive podcast this year captives are well used by university systems in the US but I'm not aware of any here in the UK you may, you may be correct me if I'm wrong or in Europe of course, the scale in the US is often a big differentiator, while hospital and healthcare institutions affiliated to the universities will often have risk financing needs as well. But would you agree that the uptake of captives by universities is almost symbolic of the greater differences between the US and the European captive markets? Yes, certainly, I would agree with that. And I think it's also very symptomatic of the high liability risks faced in the US system in general, not just universities, but uh, in general. The UK certainly has a very well-established insurance market for schools and universities. Um, And I've always thought it would be very interesting to explore how an industry captive could come into play here, uh, which could then, of course, be replicated into uh, other parts of Europe. Um, I do know there is a university group captive in Australia, Mm. which has been going for many years. So the model and the rationale are well tested. Uh, We just need to be able to persuade some of the the higher education and further education uh, institutions that this is a route that could be followed. Well, that wraps up part one of episode four. Stick with us because after the break, we will have our roundtable discussion with the captive team in Vermont. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. I want to discuss a bit about the Asian captive market with you later in the pod, Ollie. But first, I think it'd be nice to hear from our friends in Vermont, because I think we can do a bit of uh, comparing and contrasting with a, with a very mature jurisdiction, with, with more up-and-coming emerging uh, jurisdictions we have in Asia. While at SICA, I had the pleasure to sit down with Deputy Commissioner for Captive Regulation, David Provost, BCIA President Rich Smith, and Ian Davis, Director of Financial Services at the state. But Sandy Bigglestone, Director of Captive Insurance at the Department of Financial Regulation, started by telling us a bit about the 25 new captives formed in Vermont during 2018. 
25 is a great number for growth considering that since 1981 our average is 30 per year so um, we're very positive about that uh, the majority of the uh, licenses in 2018 were single parent pure captives but I think the the good news is that we had formations in seven out of the nine types of captives that we have in Vermont so that's really great um, people are looking to to have captive insurance solutions in in many types of captives. Most of the formations were in the uh, healthcare and insurance sector. Uh, six of our new formations were redomestications from other domiciles. In terms of big names, uh, Mopfrey was our first affiliated reinsurance captive. We had Ace Hardware uh, form a captive in Vermont, 21st Century Fox. Barclays, I believe. Yeah. And I guess um, on that redomestication note, Dave, it goes against the narrative that captives are always looking to move home because presumably they weren't Vermont-based companies bringing their captive back to Vermont. They were companies based wherever with captives somewhere else previously. What, what kind of reasons do you hear of captives coming to Vermont having started off somewhere else? Right. Um, so we get redomestications from a variety of sources. We've had a bunch from Bermuda and Cayman over the years. I think half the ones we redomesticated this year were uh, from New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and New York just seems to be getting out of the the captive business, they they have a captive law, they've licensed captives over the years, but they really haven't, it, it's certainly never going to be a big business to New York. Uh, it just isn't going to matter much to them. So we've moved a couple companies out of, out of New York um, and some risk retention groups as well, I think, have been moved. And that, you know, they really don't have a home state. Sandy mentioned uh, Matt Frey uh, there, Ian. So Matt Frey established the first affiliated reinsurance company in Vermont last year. Ian, you must have been pretty pleased to see that 2018 legislation pay off so early with a well-known foreign reinsurer utilizing it. Could you recap the thinking behind the ARC offering and, and what does that pipeline look like on that front? Yeah, we were very excited when Mop Free uh, became the first affiliated reinsurance company in the state. Again, this law came about uh, as part of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017. The BEAT. Um, exactly, excuse me, the BEAT tax. Um, and Vermont recognized this as an opportunity for the state. We realized that um, companies were looking for an onshore alternative. Uh, traditionally, this type of uh, transactions are ceded to offshore jurisdictions. Uh, we worked very closely with uh, our state legislature and acted really quickly. Uh, it was an ideal scenario, in fact. I mean, we love to see this when we're able to enact laws and have them utilized uh, by a company in such a short period of time. Fantastic. And moving on to 2019. Rich, how has your legislative agenda turned out this year? Things have changed a bit since we discussed it on the VCIA podcast in December, not least because I was speaking to you from a vineyard in Cape Town at the time. <laughs> yep. um, you had been exploring some specific legislation for facilitating runoff vehicles, but that didn't make the cut in the end. What happened there and, and what did you end up with? Yeah, we were looking at creating a kind of a legacy captive uh, portion for our, our captive uh, regime here in Vermont. And we're still looking at that. I think at uh, what we decided, uh, both in talking with Dave and his team and with our members, is that uh, there still needed to be some work on the legislation. We didn't want to rush it through. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, when we do launch something like this, it stands up to the, the scrutiny of uh, both the regulators here in Vermont and elsewhere. And the other uh, factor there was we have a relatively new General Assembly in Vermont, a lot of new folks both uh, in in both the House and the Senate and in the key uh, committees, including the Commerce Committee, as Ian mentioned. And the thought of uh, putting something uh, uh, that esoteric early on 
in our captive bill just didn't seem right. So uh, we're going to you know, continue to work with uh, Dave, Sandy, and uh, their team on this and uh, look forward to maybe looking at uh, putting this into uh, play sometime next year. And was there a package this year put through? Yeah, we, we've got uh, a bill in both the House and the Senate. Uh, we have two bills uh, that uh, are identical. The Senate bill, Senate 109, has already passed the Senate. It went by very quickly. Dave uh, Provost did an excellent job in Senate Finance running through the bill, um, and I think it was voted out probably two or three days later. And our expectation is that uh, the same thing will happen in the House. And uh, mostly, uh, you know, we do a lot of tweaks to uh, the Vermont captive statutes. Probably the biggest thing, and I'll ask Dave to pipe in too, but probably the biggest thing was moving the exams from a three-year period to a five-year period. It reflects, I, I think, kind of what the reality is in Vermont right now. But it also, uh, I, I think for my members, it's great that they can feel comfort that uh, there's the regulators in Vermont feel confident in these uh, captives and in, in the industry as a whole. And, and you know, it, it, it doesn't change the fact that Vermont uh, was able to grant waivers for uh, under the three-year process, but I think uh, it's just cleaner to have it at a five-year process. And then, of course, the commissioner can decide to uh, do examinations if they feel necessary uh, earlier than that. But uh, uh, we think that's a, a, an important piece. I think with Vermont, you're a mature domicile. You've already got a lot of tools in the toolkit. You're not like one of the more emerging or newer domiciles from the last five years, which is still finding its way and adding things and tweaking more things. You've got less things to do, but I know that you'd like to keep the legislation current and in front of the legislators, more importantly, as well. And, and all these things just help keep the conversation going. Um, you know, a few years ago, we passed the uh, agency captive law. And we still haven't licensed an agency captive, but because we have that law in place, we haven't had to say, no, you can't do that here. We can continue the conversation. We can say, yeah, you can do an agency captive, but what you're talking about really might fit better as a sponsored captive. And so although we haven't formed agencies, we've formed a number of sponsored captives because we've had that conversation. Uh, and one of the things that the legislature picked on that I thought would, would be easy was uh, allowing any sort of captive or any sort of corporate entity to form a captive. Right now, we're pretty specific. You can be a stock, you can be mutual, you can be a manager-managed LLC. Um, well, why not a member-managed LLC? And again, for the same reason, if you're a member-managed LLC and you look at the list, and I'm not on that list, I'm not going to even call Vermont. Yeah. Um, and in the future, if we change our, our corporate law to allow series LLCs, the captive law will keep right up with it. Yeah, could, and if I could, I'd just tag on to that. I mean, I th Dave highlights really an important part of why Vermont is uh, still such a leader in the industry is that, you know, we go in every year uh, with the state, the, the VCIA goes in every year with the state with a consensus bill on things we need to change in the, in the, in the captive statutes. And, you know, we're, we look to make sure that whether they're tweaks or adding a whole new line like we did with the affiliated, re affiliated reinsurance companies, uh, it's important for our legislature to get a hold of the laws, take a look at them, feel like they are vested in the industry. So, and uh, they feel really good. You know, they, they don't just rubber stamp these changes. They actually uh, walk through, uh, ask good questions, and then ultimately, you know, because the vetting has been done previously with uh, my members and Dave's team, you know, they feel confident in what we're bringing forward. So it, it's an important piece of, uh, of why Vermont's a leader. I'd like to highlight another piece of our proposal which uh, relates to certain types of captives that have to follow very somewhat outdated, very prescriptive investment 
requirements. And so um, in particular, one of those types of companies that has to follow uh, over the years is risk retention groups. And we have the majority of them in the U.S. We think that we have a good uh, set of standards to regulate those. Um, We took a look at the law and said we can still meet accreditation requirements um, in terms of what's required for investments, but we are going to propose um, in the law that risk retention groups and other types of captives that are also subject to those standards um, to submit a plan to give a little bit more flexibility in their investment portfolio portfolio and their strategy instead of following the prescriptive um, laws. They can still choose to follow those laws um, or send us a plan for our approval. And we think that that's going to add a little bit more flexibility in terms of all the different types of RRGs and different sizes. Um, I think it'll play nicely with with investment portfolio. So lastly, we've we've talked about lots of positive things and lots of positive developments over uh, 2018. But to my mind, 2018 uh, was kind of also dominated by quite a few high-profile regulatory disputes, most notably the Microsoft Washington State case. Is Commissioner Cradler of Washington State still the bogeyman for the captive industry? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say he was the the, the bogeyman for uh, necessarily. I, I mean, it, it's a problem. You know, I think what he was looking to do was uh, create some sort of... Uh, uh, self-procurement tax when the Washington state law didn't provide for such a thing. So he kind of twisted, uh, in my view, he kind of twisted whatever laws they had in Washington to try to uh, come down on some of the um, larger in-state corporations that have captives out of state. So still a problem. Um, I don't see necessarily at this point, you know, what the solution is. You know, at, at this point, uh, as we saw with Microsoft, you know, they're not looking to, to pick a fight with their home state insurance commissioner. I w- you know, wouldn't be surprised if that was, you know, the same for a lot of the companies, if not all of the companies that are, are headquartered in, in the state of Washington. So definitely a problem, definitely a concern, um, and a very frustrating, too, I'll say, because uh, I think from all the legal a- angles on this, it, it doesn't make any sense. But yet, you know, at this point, it looks like he's going to continue to do what he's going to do there. So, Ollie, on your captive travels, have you ever passed through Vermont? You have much experience of uh, the Green Mountain State, I believe it's called? Uh, well, I did have four absolutely lovely days on our honeymoon oh. in Vermont. Burling- um, Burlington? <laughs> it was in Burlington, yes. And then, rather ironically, we then spent a week in Bermuda. So it was a bit of a busman's holiday, really. Are you sure it was a, are you sure it was a honeymoon or was it just a captive, <laughs> world captive tour you always wanted to do? Well, it's, yes, indeed so. Um, but Damien was in Vermont in March um, and met with uh, Dave uh, Provost and with Rich um, as we have a new client for whom we're establishing Captive Vermont right now. Is that, is that an exclusive for the Global Captive podcast? We don't get many of those, I don't think. It will be an exclusive <laughs> when we're allowed to talk about it. <laughs> Great. Well, from what you've seen in Asia over the years, could it be a realistic ambition for, for a Labuan or a Singapore to one day reach the size and maturity of a domicile such as Vermont? Yes, I passionately believe that will be the case, certainly in the case of Labuan. Uh, what we have in Labuan already is uh, a mature infrastructure, Uh, a well-respected regulator, proven capabilities, um, and it's actually the fastest-growing domicile in the Asian region. They've laid out their store very, very clearly as they push to become not only the premier location in Asia, but also a leading global player. They won't be satisfied just to attract business from the Asian region. 
Um, as an example of that, we're currently working on a feasibility study for an EU-based client who shortlisted Bermuda and Labuan as their only two preferences. Wow, that's quite a, that is quite a contrast in terms of, of heritage and history and uh, maturity in, 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 in the captive market. Quite so. We, we obviously talked to them about all the other major domiciles and uh, having gone through that initial process with them, they were very clear with us and said, Bermuda or Lab One, now go away and do the work. So is that, uh, obviously, you, you won't be able to name the client, but do they have Asia risks? Do they have a connection to the, the Asia region? They do. They, they are actually a global organisation, so they have risks uh, in pretty much most in- industrial countries around the world. I believe Lab One's now up to around late 40s in captive numbers. I haven't seen last year's statistics, but it's around there, just under 50 perhaps. And where do you think the, re- the ultimate responsibility lies, though, for captives to crack the Asia market? Is it with state and local governments to create a captive-friendly atmosphere? Is it for the captive managers, brokers, reinsurance to push? Or does it need to have the demand coming from the, the local risk and insurance management community? All of the above. But particularly, I think it's uh, the responsibility of the captive industry professionals. We really need to get the message out to buyers through programmes of education and knowledge. What I found is that the governments in Asia generally favour captive usage. And the reason for that is that they see that such usage going hand in hand with improved risk management within the, the, the various organisations. However, just as we've seen in certain parts of Europe, local brokers can be very fearful about the captive movement as they might see the use of the captive by one of their clients as threatening yeah. or moving into their role. But... I also believe, and I've seen evidence of this, that those brokers locally that are bold, that embrace the captive movement, they will start to reap the benefits of longer-term value-added relationships with their customers. Um, I think the other, the other issue for Asia is that of all the locations that I've, uh, I've concentrated on in my, in my career, I have always found the Asian market to be much more price-sensitive than other parts of the world they are very focused in ensuring that they get not only the best deal for themselves but also a fair relationship with their with their suppliers so when you start talking to them about setting up a captive or a sale the first question often is well how much is this going to cost and what benefits am i going to reap from actually having this structure in place uh, in the first place and that is almost counterintuitive to other uh, other parts of the world where the question is, how is this going to benefit my organisation from a risk management and therefore also a financial perspective? So that's why I talk about the, the need for the education um, and, the, and the knowledge, but it's not purely about the price. Very, very, very true. And just to give our listeners a bit of background on the different jurisdictions in um, Asia, which, which are kind of captive friendly. As we said, Lab One and Singapore definitely lead the way. Singapore very heavily utilised. I think about 70 to 80 captives in Singapore, very heavily utilised by uh, Australian businesses. A lot of large Australian multinationals, uh, large mining companies um, have captives in Singapore. Lab One, obviously a very heavy Malaysia pack of captives there, but also I know that Japan, I think the, the only captive coming out of Brunei is also in, in Lab One, and, and, and they're also looking at some South Korean opportunities as well so ollie just wrapping up how have you enjoyed your first appearance on a on a captive podcast oh it's been enormous fun and uh, i really appreciate the opportunity to be part of this thank you for joining me ollie on the global captive podcast and to all of my guests this week heather mcclure from university of oklahoma and the vermont team dave sandy rich and ian see you next time captives